This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. Welcome back to Mutant. Two days ago, on June 29, 2023, the US Supreme Court struck down affirmative action using democratic means in the name of democracy and equality on the heels last year of striking down another A-word, abortion. Data seems to suggest 63% of Americans are in favor of affirmative action. What then does democracy mean when neither the majority decision, flawed as it often can be, nor the protection of minority informs a democracy's course? As we begin this recuperation of words and the words that we actually will spend time on today are two visceral words, annihilation and amnesia. We begin by examining, and I begin by asking Ashwari, what happens when these twin catastrophes come to pass in a democracy? What happens to come back to two days ago when we lose affirmative action? That's a great question to uh, begin, Pyle, and I'm both, um, both shocked by the turn of events uh, that the Supreme Court uh, seems to have presided over, uh, and also by the fact, as a, as a political theorist, uh, by how much of this is driven in the language of constitutionality. Um, and I think uh, we need to first understand uh, why and under what conditions these clearly anti-democratic uh, attacks on our political life on our commitment to happiness, even excellence, can take on the language of constitutional justification. Uh, but before we go there, I think uh, what is important to remember is, is the idea that what the Supreme Court has just attacked is not simply the rights of racial minorities in the United States to get into elite universities and colleges. What the Supreme Court has attacked following that when it canceled the Biden administration's debt relief program for students uh, is not simply access to education. The United States Supreme Court has attacked the very foundation of democratic citizenship. It is a war on higher education, but it is also a war, therefore, on what we call the pursuit of moral, political, and epistemic justice. It is an attack on not simply the rights of minoritized students to gain access to elite places of learning. It is actually 
an attempt to undermine and undercut the very idea that racial minorities and the youngest among them, the brightest among them, are actually capable of belonging to these institutions, that they are capable of training in skills and languages that have been prohibited and from which they have been barred for generations, perhaps even centuries. The paradox of this situation, of course, is that this attack on higher ed is carried out precisely in the language of racial justice, precisely in the language of the dissolution of racial categories. So one mainstream argument on the American right is that in so many ways, affirmative action reinscribes the idea of racial identity through the back door. The problem of, with that argument is that it's simply not rooted in historical facts. Affirmative action does not create racial identity, nor does it reinscribe racial identification in institutions of higher learning. Racism and racial segregation in institutions of higher learning is already a reality. Affirmative action, inadequately perhaps, but still tries to address that history of inequality. And that history of inequality shall never be addressed within the constitutional and the normative language games that we have come to play and that we have come to associate with liberal democracy. Something more is needed and that will require a very different sort of critique. That is the sort of critique that B.R. Ambedkar compresses in the word annihilation when he publishes his slim manifesto of a lecture that he calls annihilation of caste. That is why when you look back at the genealogy of this attack on American higher ed, it seems to be a genealogy that is not simply American. It's not even exceptionally American, let alone solely American. This genealogy of attack on our very capacity to think, our capacity to conceptualize, belongs to our political history. And that is what needs to be addressed. Racial injustice or segregation by other means shall not be addressed, cannot be addressed, simply by looking at or lurching back into or reposing our faith in normative categories. Another word that liberals love. This morning where we are recording in Goa, another, yet another piece um, about Indian democracy lurches back to the language of the normative. But who is the framer of the normative? That question cannot be answered without asking or shifting away from our extreme obsession with minority rights and asking how is it that the majority mutates, morphs, and therefore transforms our democratic culture every day, bit by bit. The United States Supreme Court 
is simply the constitutional masquerade of that mutation. Two things in particular you touched on, and when we come to constitution in our episode on the letter C, we will unpack this, I hope, in greater detail. You touched both on the constitutional nature of these uh, eviscerations of rights in the name of the constitution, and you touched on the man who in India uh, is upheld as the greatest constitutionalist of them all, the architect of the constitution, B.R. Ambedkar, who you have described, in fact, um, as the man who was a constitutionalist only because he was an insurrectionist, right? And I want to come back to that formulation because it gives us a radically different way of viewing what it means to stand for constitutions and what constitutions cannot be allowed to be a masquerade for. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's important to remember that when we use certain kinds of uh, words to describe a figure, what is involved is condensation of different, often heterogeneous, if not irreconcilable elements um, that a person can embody. And the, the, the thing that is fascinating about B.R. Ambedkar is, is that he is deemed to be an architect of a constitution whose inadequacy he relentlessly both revealed and wrote about and thought through, right? This is why um, what fascinates me more is not that he's the architect of the world's longest written national constitution. What fascinates me more is the very idea that somehow Ambedkar can be safely described as an architect. And I'm happy to take that at face value. I'm happy to concede that Ambedkar is an architect. But what sort of an architect? And more importantly, what is an architect? Um, and the word architect, therefore, itself fascinates me for two reasons. First, for very conceptual, perhaps even linguistic reasons. For if the foundation of uh, it, this thing called the Constitution, is already that which precedes the notion, the concept, and the law of every word, in Greek, archi means something that comes before, the law that comes before every law. Then what sort of craft or force does the word architect stand for? What sort of originary purity of the law does it seek, does the architect seek? Or rather, what kind of purity does that first law before the law have? And what happens to this first law when it becomes indissociable from those names, even structures that are pegged on the refutation of any idea of purity? Now, remember, Ambedkar says that the first law before all law has a name in the Indian tradition, and that name is caste, the law that comes before all law, because that name describes a certain zeal for purity, for a pure world, pure blood. So what happens when the architect comes to believe that his practice 
now depends or is now founded upon not that purity, but on the refutation of that purity. Ambedkar, the architect, believes that his craft is based not in the striving for purity, but upon its, but upon its refutation. So what if the architect or one who is given this identity actually chips away at the idea of originary purity itself and finds, even seeks, the pure contamination of a world touched unequally, a world constituted by inequality, a world that is always unequal. That world, for Ambedkar, is a world that is unjust, or what he describes it as a world that is wrong a wrong world. For him, the world of the real, the truthful architect, the architect who I called the revolutionary, that world, the revolutionary's world, is aware of something else, something more heterogeneous, something um, that is impure in the human condition. It's like a world in exile from itself, as if it were suspended in a void. So this is another architecture that Ambedkar dreams of, that he imagines. Um, and there is a, there's a fascinating 1940s work, to which we'll come later in Mutant, where he says that my work is actually a work of art. Lawmaking is not a science. Constitutions, let alone democracy, is not a science. In fact, he says my works are always a work of art and I am more of a painter than an architect. So another architecture then, perhaps even another origin story. And that would be this other kind of architect. And that's the second way in which I believe the word architect must be read. The first way in which it should not be read, the architect as the author of the pure. The architect as someone who begins with a void. Right? And the second, the political architect, that who believes that the world, no matter what you think about it, like we were just saying about the US Supreme Court, it just believes that the world will be slightly better if we did not reinscribe racial categories on it. Racial categories come after racism, right? Tanahesi Coates has this beautiful line in his memoir, Between the World and Me, where he says, but race is, not, is the child of racism, not its father. And I think that is where somewhere in that tradition of thinking that Ambedkar lands, um, acutely aware that all these words are in the end. All our words in the end are political words. And to turn away from them, seeking some sort of a normative truth in them, is, is a deeply flawed, politically inadequate, and morally untenable exercise. I think um, the word that we therefore return to most powerfully, most viscerally, with, uh, when we speak of B.R. Ambedkar, takes from his seminal work, Annihilation of Caste, and the word annihilation itself, right, in a sense, to continue from where you ended, is the beginning of his vision for a world that can, in fact, look 
morally just. It begins with an annihilation, right? Now, the, the paradox there is that everything about the word itself and how we learn it, how we use it, conjures up traditionally the destructive, right? And yet in the hands of Ambedkar, the word takes on a counterintuitive genius. It takes on political imagination. It takes on political courage. It takes on, uh, it's a radical act of creativity, right? What is Ambedkar's annihilation? Yeah, that's, that's uh, in fact, that, that is the beginning of all conversations on B.R. Ambedkar. Um, because annihilation of caste is the beginning of a, of a truly revolutionary political philosophy in India. There is before that text in the modern Indian tradition, in the modern Indian democratic tradition, as it were, no single text that inaugurates a certain mode of thinking, a certain mode of critique of political norms and political forms before annihilation of caste. And within that, as I've often said, the, the emphasis uh, seems to somehow come to rest on caste, which, which of course we will return to again and again. But the key concept, the pivot there, the philosophical anchor too in that text is annihilation. Uh, annihilation for Ambedkar uh, is very different from the sort of um, visions the word conjures when you associate it with the tradition of philosophical uh, nihilism. In fact, later in his life, there is a moment in uh, his 1956 book, The Masterpiece, The Buddha and His Dhamma, where Ambedkar recreates a dialogue between uh, the Buddha and um, a few skeptics, where Buddha clarifies why he's not a nihilist. And I think it's a very uh, poignant, uh, I mean, of course, it's philosophically serious, but also a very poignant moment where Ambedkar recreates the dialogue in, in a moment of dramatic projection, because he knows that those who are intent on misreading him will always find a reason to never read him, because those who misread often refuse to read. For them, the title Annihilation of Caste is enough to dismiss it as a work of a violent insurrectionist. But actually, annihilation of caste is not simply about insurrection in the commonsensical, colloquial way we now use it in the wake of January 6 uh, attack on the US Capitol. Insurrection comes from a more revolutionary idea of disobedience and the refusal to obey unjust laws. So first and foremost, annihilation is refusal of a world as it is. Secondly, Annihilation is a destruction of the world as it is. But perhaps most importantly and thirdly, annihilation is an act of faith. Annihilation, to use Ambedkar's word, is responsibility to the world as it is. And it is in these three modes of enunciation that the text, Annihilation of Caste, 1936, proceeds. Annihilation as rejection or refusal never exit. He's not exiting the world. Annihilation is not nihilism. It's not a free fall into meaninglessness. Is annihilation also a refusal of mutation? Annihilation is actually an embrace of finitude, which is immutable. The only thing that is immutable 
I wouldn't say Ambedkar ever refuses the idea of mutation because what he sees as the coming majoritarian apocalypse is a mutant. It shifts its shape. The defining feature of modern political sovereignty is not its immutability, but actually its mutant character. That concept he will never refuse. But what he will say is that there is an immutable core, the, 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 the center of human existence, and that is our finitude. The fact that we will end and everything follows from a radical awareness of that finitude. As he writes, it is on account of shunyata that everything rests because everything begins from our knowledge of impermanence, that this will end. This is what he radicalizes when he studies and develops his theory of majoritarian power. It has been said that modern political thought actually has no decent theory of majoritarian power. But that can be said only of, of the European tradition. Because in the global south, in, in India especially, Ambedkar is actually the only thinker, with the exception of Hannah Arendt, who's thinking of this problematic in the 40s and the 50s. What really ails democracy? Stateless minorities, as Arendt argues, or a mutant majority, as Ambedkar argues. For the next generation, perhaps a generation and a half, this, I believe, is our philosophical task. Whether we will remain obsessed with liberal platitudes towards minorities, or will we really come to a radical critique of majoritarian abuse of power? The first lurches towards the towards a certain kind of love, I would say, of the normative. The other believes that the constitution must be subject to revolution, to rewriting, to bringing to date. That's the conflict we see in the United States as well between originalists and progressives. But to, to, to come to your question um, uh, quickly before we move on, why has it become so, or why has it remained so easy to discard, let alone misread and highlation of caste? Uh, the one common theme running through people's minds and languages and dismissals of this text is, look, this is a very angry work. And highlation of caste is not an angry work in the sense they use it. And highlation of caste is a work on anger. It is a work that tells us, compels us, even provokes us to be angry at a casteist world. One thinks here of Audre Lorde's immortal lines. I am angry. I get angry. She might even say I must be angry at racism. In that sense, there is a certain kind of democratic anger which is fueled not by rage but by moral clarity. That is what annihilation is. Not a refutation of our mutant character, but an embrace of a certain kind of immutability. And when there is a rejection of that immutability, the fact that we, will, we are all mortals, we have the right to be angry. We have the right to be angry when our suffering is never enough to be called suffering. When our silencing is never enough to be called silencing. 
when our killing is never enough to be called murder the work annihilation of caste may seem to speak to india but i know that in your reading of it um both the word and the work inform political thought as such thinking about democracy as such but just thinking about political life as such in opening up this conversation beyond india in in a sense the word annihilation seems to offer us a lesson i would say so obvious that it almost uh, escapes us which is that everything in the world that you have just spoken of and everything that seems immutable today including our political structures our political imaginary is in fact human construct and annihilation i think offers us the reminder that this can be destroyed but also the reminder therefore that this was all willfully created right and it leads me from annihilation into saying can we really talk about annihilation without also speaking of that amnesia i mean the the clearest the clearest act the, the the most clarifying act of rejection as we were saying early on uh that first and foremost among the three things that annihilation is is a rejection so what does it reject of the when it rejects the world as we were saying rejects the world as it is annihilation ambedkar's annihilation rejects the world that thrives in forgetfulness in amnesia in that sense uh, i i absolutely agree with you annihilation of caste cannot be read as anything at all if it cannot be read as a treatise on amnesia it's first and foremost a rejection of our ability and our desire perhaps our will to forget when ambedkar returns to the uh, the idea of killing in the epic traditions uh there's a remarkable moment in annihilation of caste where he goes back to the indian epic ramayana and uh brings up an episode in which a lord rama the the man the figure the hero the god the avatar who is credited with the most sovereign guardian of the moral law maryada in fact he's so sovereign in that tradition that the expression maryada purushottam the sovereign of all laws or disciplinary injunction injunctions the law abider so perfect that he becomes a law giver maryada purushottam kills shambhaka and ambedkar brings up that episode to highlight among many things that we will need time to unpack among many things brings up this episode to highlight the fact that there is something very fundamental there's this thing fundamental ineradicable at the heart lodged at the very heart of the indian construction to take your word of social and political virtue what is this thing that is lodged at the heart of indian notion of virtue that afflicts even its most sovereign most impeccable practitioner and he says killing cruelty only the indian tradition does this remarkable job of embellishing it in verses where every act of killing acquires the form of a sacrifice a sacrifice that is never mired in self-interest ambedkar's entire life work but most importantly annihilation of caste depends on this one argument that sometimes 
the greatest act of cruelty lie not in the spilling of blood but in the concealment of sacrifice in verse this is why it's fascinating so few people really ponder or even mull let alone ask why this so called modernist and some people have often called ambedkar an unalloyed modernizer spend so much time going into classical constitutional languages lexicons including roman and greek languages sometimes on specific terms in those traditions for example in the roman tradition ambedkar spends some time thinking about the word hostess from which emerges two modern words hospitality and hostility what is the connection between these two seemingly antithetical notions and how does that influence how we understand our own political modernity and he says i have an answer the answer lies in the fact that we know how to practice nonviolence in the most violent manner possible we know how to execute a murder in the most nonviolent manner possible it is in that sense that he believes that amnesia is the first wall that we need to breach in order to access this ineradicable and violent core that constitutes our democratic project i want uh, to to quote you and to actually ask you to unpack a little bit of something in in an essay war without end you wrote amnesia the political use and abuse of memory is key to the logic and structure of the disposition to kill the forgetfulness that prevents a society from calling its regime of lynching a war is part of this punitive conformist disposition or worse social convention one in which bodies and words are let to simply disappear and the normative border between war and peace crime and law demagoguery and tranquility has simply ceased to hold right and i want to lead from there into the phrase that you are i think singularly poised to unpack what ambedkar calls a state of armed neutrality will you tell us what that means in in the in in the most simple uh, sense what armed neutrality really means or what it simply encrusts itself as in our democratic life is social etiquette as compassion empathy even right armed neutrality uh, or or what ambedkar calls armed neutrality is a certain regime of liberal empathy it's a, a constant relentless desire and will to punish the other the minority the outnumbered the outcast the woman the child even but at the same time let alone justify simply code this regime of killing in the language of honor right arm neutrality is honor killing given a normative gloss we think honor killing is a bad thing right what ambedkar says that they're all killings have something to do with social conventions around honor 
think, for example, of something that only and only a caste society in which endogamy is the law can can really allow and live with, which uh, at least up until the 80s and 90s when it became really endemic, even pandemic, used to be called dowry deaths. Under what conditions do we burn women because they do not bring property or money when they are married to the families they are married into, right? So we find different ways to code and categorize acts of crime. We find different ways to code and categorize our murderous delirium. And that is what armed neutrality is. It is... It is violence given a civic form. We are armed to teeth, willing to kill without combat. The tragedy of this killing without combat is that it would not even qualify as sacrifice. You cannot even sacrifice those fellow citizens who are so unequal, their deaths will not even be registered their disappearance never accounted for, their bodies never found. Young Muslim men hung from trees because they were suspected of killing cattle. A young student languishing in jail without charges, let alone trial. Another young student who disappears, who disappears from the country's most prestigious institution and the mother waits and he has not even been found. And we live on invoking the normative and the constitutional. That is armed neutrality. Armed neutrality is killing without combat because it kills by indifference. Annihilation is the destruction of that regime of indifference. There is something profoundly angry in this word precisely because Ambedkar is so angry at this indifference. Enough, he says in another essay seven years later, enough of this clatter of liberals and liberalism. How prophetic. Liberals are still hoping that the uniform civil code will not become an instrument of tyranny. When the uniform civil code is the constitutional masquerade for majoritarian tyranny, and that is the expression Ambedkar takes both from John Stuart Mill and Tocqueville's Democracy in America because he believes that the Constitution cannot save you unless you understand that some of the norms that are written into laws have always been majoritarian norms. In the United States, many of the norms that go around as constitutional norms are actually norms that encrust kind of insoluble or seemingly insoluble white power. Whether it's the right to wield semi-automatic weapons, whether it's the stripping of voting rights from one-time felons, whether it is the resounding destruction of affirmative action by the country's highest court, whether it is, above all, the refusal of a woman's right to choose when she wants to start a family are all coded ways of encrusting the power of a class and a race that lives in the fear of small numbers. Among the most potent forms of 
human segregation and, and human decomposition even, caste and race seem to find their origins and their forever homes in democracies. What makes democracy not just compatible but almost fertile for this kind of decomposition of its own? Well, I think the, the most important element there, which, and I, I will keep going back to annihilation of caste here because that's where you asked me to start and keep at. So it's, it's a very, very powerful way to, to frame the problematic here because there's something very, very um, conducive in a system of government that thrives on the power of numbers, which is to say a certain kind of irremediable difference and disjuncture between the majority and the minority, in which this kind of cruelty persists and even multiplies. And that's because we reduce that very system of government to a system of numbers. Um, but what is really at the heart and why they thrive in, in democracies has got something to do with, with the majoritarian perversion of political power, of democratic power, power of the people. You know, uh, in the end, democracy is always uh, an act of faith. When we give ourselves a democracy, we believe that the greatest number will choose and make decisions, what we call in political theory, the majority decision. We give the majority and the greatest number to choose for the common good of the greatest number. But we also, in some ways, pose our faith in the idea that the majority will eventually and somehow always, inevitably, decide what is good for everyone equally. That's the idea of democratic equality, or perhaps the more commonplace idea that only in democracy can we live as equals. Why? Because there is an act of faith involved in calling ourselves a democracy, which is that the majority will choose what is the best for everyone. And I think what Ambedkar's calling for is a deep, deeper, more sensitive understanding of why a certain kind of majority will always destroy this pact and this act of faith that even the most minor among the citizens pose in the majority. If democracy is a certain kind of faith, it is also a certain kind of cruelty because it perverts that very faith. And when it perverts that faith, it perverts it in a suicidal delirium. It hurts everyone. Every time we think about these categories, we, we know that uh, caste and race look like they are archaic. They belong to another time. But there's nothing more modern than caste and race, right? Because they, are, they, they both have something in common, which is that they are constructions of difference, of irreducible difference between human species or among human species, that does not exist. Caste and race and religion belongs to another order, but the critique of religious difference is easier because we can argue that religion is a way to categorize the human species, while caste and race are categories of human species. 
and they thrive because something about liberal democracies, which is government run on the power of numbers, allows it allows it to prosper. This is why annihilation in its third mode, among the three, in its third mode for Ambedkar, annihilation is also a responsibility. It is a responsibility towards the vulnerable. It is a responsibility towards the outnumbered. But most importantly, Ambedkar says, it is the responsibility towards those who are violated and oppressed on account of their religious beliefs. Think of the other Supreme Court decision yesterday on grounds of First Amendment rights, that any person in the United States can now refuse to serve a same-sex couple because serving a same-sex couple, so much as building a website or designing a wedding card, a wedding invitation for a same-sex couple when they get married could be antithetical to the religious beliefs of the, of the web designer. So now, in the United States, you can refuse to serve same-sex couples on, religious, on grounds of religious freedom. What kind of religious freedom is this? And how do we respond to this religion itself? That's what Ambedkar writes in Annihilation of Caste in the language of responsibility. He says a, a, a religion that violates you, violates your dignity, is not true religion. Any religion shorn of this responsibility towards the human is not religion. And then comes the pivotal line, perhaps the most dramatic in Annihilation of Caste, where he says, to not destroy such a religion is the most irreligious act. So all religions who are irresponsible towards the human form must be destroyed, not in an act of atheist zeal, but in an embrace of religious responsibility itself. And that is what I think at the heart of it makes annihilation of caste so difficult for believers to read. I just want to spend a few minutes, um, and we're going to have to close soon, uh, but, but I want to spend a few minutes on amnesia because you did very, very potently um, illuminate the connection in a sense, between annihilation and amnesia. But what does it mean for a people or a nation to have amnesia? And in a sense, would you, would you say amnesia is a technique? And what is it a technique of, if yes? Is it a technique of majoritarianism? In that sense, would it then be fair to call minorities, in fact, a resistance to forgetting? Is a minority a resistance to forgetting. I, I love the formulation, um, what does it mean for us to have amnesia? <laughs> In that sense, it is an affliction, but it is also uh, a very cultivated desire, and it's a, it's a curated will to forget. Um, so in, as we end, um, we need to perhaps remember, so to speak, the idea that Amnesia is possible only in a society that is insecure about itself. That amnesia is the first resort of a civilization that knows that there are acts of felony hidden under 
its surface and that any act of even preliminary archaeology will reveal acts of crime and acts of organized crime that were and remain inexcusable. In our own time, we see amnesia to be um, articulated or uh, amnesia reflected in this desire to concede a certain sort of defeat. The, the idea that we need to dig up certain Mughal monuments in India so that we can find more statues and idols of Hindu gods and goddesses under these monuments because somehow, somewhere, every such great monument or fort, let alone a tomb, was always built over a Hindu temple. That zeal is not simply a passive amnesia of history. That zeal is afflicted by, in fact, that zeal is crippled from the inside by a certain insecurity, a certain defeat, a certain memory of defeat. So one thing about amnesia we perhaps need to now, before we return to this theme later on in, the, in Mutant, uh, one thing to remember about amnesia is some of it is, is not simply forgetting but also lying. Amnesia thrives only in a society that has given itself over to mass perjury. And one of the lies that a civilization can tell any civilization that, that says it has never been defeated is actually lying to itself about itself. Um, and amnesia is a way to forget that defeat. It is also a way to create new wounds over those very histories of defeat. Uh, the attacks on Mughal monuments is that complicated, unresolved blend of lying and forgetfulness. Lying because we keep saying history did not happen this way. And amnesia because somehow we believe that we can construct temples to Naturam Godse and Mahatma Gandhi at one at the same time because in the end our civilization can take in everything. But the civilization cannot take in everything. An insecure civilization, even less so. And that is what amnesia actually allows us to do. Forget or lie about defeat while creating a whole framework in which Gandhi and Godse can go together. And we can sit comfortably on the stairs of the temples we will construct for both. Tomorrow, it might be called normative. Today, it is called outlandish. I just I have a final question, and in a sense that brings together where we began um, with striking down of affirmative action, and will probably lead us where we are going next to the letter B, where we examine the body and brutalism. And, I, and the question really is, is amnesia only of the past? And what of those we forget at catastrophic and systemic scales in the present? Is amnesia what we do every day in order to, to create these and, and replicate these civilizational systems of oppression and, and neglect? Great question. Amnesia, uh, in that sense, we, yeah, in closing, let us simply say that amnesia is not simply an art form. Uh, amnesia is not simply skill or will. 
Amnesia is an economy. Amnesia is a war not simply on memory. Amnesia is a war on the future itself. We forget the past because we imagine and we obsessively try to control, regulate and manage the future. It is a war of forgetting waged on our future. And in that sense, all acts of amnesia, all economies of amnesia are about the future. When we attack the body, as we will discuss in our next episode, whether through, whether through caste or whether through uh, the dismantling of access to abortion that women have in the world's most advanced liberal democracies, what we really do attack is a certain kind of a future. We attack the very foundation of the future citizen. Because when a woman starts her family is not simply a moral or a social, let alone a racial question. It is also a question of economy. These are not simply social or economic rights. These are civil rights. And that is where I think amnesia hits the hardest not to simply the idea of the history that we have come to live with but to the very future that we might inhabit we're we're going to close i think the most uh, staggering way of seeing the word annihilation um, that that Ambedkar offers us, I think is in fact today it seems like the only antidote to the very, very real annihilation staring us in the face at clam, you know through climate change and at planetary scales. And I'd love you to unpack that um, subsequently when we when we come to questions of planetarity. What does annihilation, as Ambedkar sees it, give us as a way? to rescue ourselves from this uh, annihilation staring us in the face. Yes, let us, let us absolutely do that because in the end, Ambedkar is always a thinker of the future. But I also believe that the most, most radical Ambedkar, as I call it, lies ahead in the future. And in that sense, Annihilation of Caste, the book we started with, is a text of the future. Not because it believes in destruction, but it believes, but because it believes in responsibility. And that annihilation is responsibility is perhaps the only way for us to rethink extinction itself. This was episode one, Amnesia and Annihilation. We'll be back with Mutant as we build this dictionary of our political present and our political future with the words body and brutalism right here on Mutant. Thanks for listening.